Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And we're back at it with the Book of Revelation. I've so loved this series, Colleen. This has been so fun. And today we're going to be looking at the church in Philadelphia. Now, did anything jump out at you or stand out in your mind before we read the passage? You know, I just always love what Jesus says to the church in these different cities seems to parallel with what's going on in these cities. And we'll get into it more as we move through the passage, but I was fascinated by the history of earthquakes in this city and the fact that the promises that Jesus gives seem to answer the insecurities that would come from living in an environment like that, which we'll detail out later. But I love learning about the cities and seeing how the words of Christ reflect what's going on there, not just spiritually, but even geographically. Right. Well, when we got to Philadelphia, I admit I felt a little confused as I studied the background information I could find for this city. Now, I knew that these seven churches that we've been talking about are in seven cities Mm -hmm. that are somewhat close to each other, kind of in a peninsula area of what is now Turkey, and it's kind of sticking out into the edge of the Mediterranean. But they had seemed unrelated to me in their background stories. Philadelphia's story seemed completely different to me. So I did a little research, and I think I have a better picture of it now. First of all, Philadelphia, unlike all the other cities, is a new city. All the others we've studied had existed for many centuries. Mm -hmm. In fact, remember Smyrna, that first church for which Jesus had no condemnation? It was the oldest of the seven. It had existed since 2000 B.C., But here, we come to this good church in Philadelphia, and the city of Philadelphia was only about 200 years old when John wrote Revelation. In order to get a picture of how these cities fit into history together, let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that giant image that confused him until Daniel told him what it meant. Remember the head of gold represented Babylon. The chest and arms of silver represented the next empire, Medo-Persia, and Persia became the dominant force in that alliance. The bronze abdomen represented Greece, and the legs of iron represented the fourth empire, Rome. Mm -hmm. When Babylon and then Medo-Persia after it went out conquering territory for their empires, They took land by force, and they established themselves as the political rulers of their territories. They didn't worry about forcing their conquests to adopt any language, any culture. It was enough for them to just make slaves of people, take territory, be in charge, and expand their influence in the world. They wanted to be world empires. That's what mattered to them. Last week, when we studied Sardis, we learned that Persia had already been to this part of Asia Minor, Mm -hmm. and we had learned that King Cyrus of Persia had even overthrown King Croesus, who'd been the king of the Empire of Lydia, and he'd been established at Sardis. So we know that Persia had already established itself in this region long before the city of Philadelphia had even been built. But then... Greece emerged. We're moving down that image. Medo-Persia is waning now under the 
oncoming power of Greece, led by Alexander the Great. He was fierce, he was fast, he conquered all the then-known civilized world, taking power away from Medo-Persia. He defeated Persia, and he pushed the borders of Greece farther east, farther west than any other power had ever done. And he came now to the region of these seven cities and took control of them for the empire of Greece. Now, Greece under Alexander's influence, was different from those previous empires. He had a goal. It wasn't just to get territory, which obviously was a major goal, Mm -hmm. but he wanted to make the world Greek. So as he took territory, he insisted that the people he conquered learn the Greek language, um, learn Greek philosophy, Greek government, Greek music, art. And this process of making nations that he conquered Greek is the process that was called Hellenizing. So as Greek invaded this part of Asia Minor, where these seven cities were, they became Hellenized. To the point that Pergamum, remember Pergamum, the city with the destination medical center? Pergamum was considered a world-class example of Greek culture. It was a Hellenistic city, and Pergamum and the surrounding area is how Philadelphia came to exist. And here's what happened. There was a king of Pergamum, a Greek king, Attalus II Philadelphus. Attalus Philadelphus built the city of Philadelphia for a very specific purpose. He established it in a really broad valley that had a large open space along trade routes right into the center, the inland area of Asia Minor. And Attalus's purpose was to build Philadelphia to be a center for evangelizing the inland with Greek culture. Its purpose was to Hellenize Asia Minor, through its open access into the interior. In fact, Philadelphia was specifically built as a Greek city, Mm -hmm. different from all the ancient cities around it that had to become Greek. It was Greek from its inception. It was so Greek, it was often called the Little Athens. Now, it was named for its founder, as I said, Attalus Philadelphus, and that we need to understand because the name has a meaning. Attalus Philadelphus had a really close bond with his brother Eumenes, who was also a Greek soldier. But there had been efforts of politicians to try to separate the alliances between Attalus and Eumenes, but they were very loyal to each other, and they didn't allow political pressure to split them apart. They had remained loyal. So the people plotting against them had not been able to accomplish their purposes. So the word Philadelphus, which was the name by which Attalus became popularly known, was a word that meant brotherly love, and that's the name Philadelphia that he gave to the city he had built. However, Rome was mustering its armies and had already begun its relentless pursuit of all Greek territory at the time Philadelphia came into existence. Now, Rome was less philosophical than Greece. It was more pragmatic. It had huge armies that took more territory than Greece ever had, but it took advantage of the Greek legacy. Now, Rome didn't try to make everybody change into some sort of Roman culture. It used Greek culture to its advantage. It was happy to let people keep the Greek language, to adopt Greek government, to adopt Greek philosophy and literature. 
because Greek culture was more advanced, more civilized, more educated than some of those ancient ones, and it worked to Rome's advantage. What Rome did was to build infrastructure. So as Rome conquered territory, it united the world with roads and aqueducts and architecture that were just triumphs of engineering. Mm -hmm. So Philadelphia, which had been built as a Hellenistic Greek evangelizing city, if you want to call it that, fell into Roman control with a natural disaster. It was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 17. Yeah, so this is the same earthquake that we talked about when we were looking at the church in Sardis. The difference is Philadelphia was the closest to the epicenter. So it was really, truly devastated. The city was rebuilt with the help of Tiberius, just like he had helped Sardis. And when it was rebuilt, it was renamed. They renamed it Philadelphia Neo Caesarea to give honor to Caesar. Now, there was another earthquake in AD 60, and the people were so afraid of the aftershocks that they remained outside of the walls of the city after this quake. It was funny to listen to Gary talk about this during his word search presentation because he talked about an earthquake that happened here in Redlands when he first came as pastor. And I remember that earthquake. I was young. I was in middle Mm -hmm. school. I do too. And the first earthquake was violent, but it was a day of aftershocks. And I remember being afraid to even be inside of our apartment. I spent the day out by the pool. (laughs) Those aftershocks can be scary and they were shook. (laughs) So again, the city was rebuilt, but this time with the help of the emperor Vespasian, he was the head of the Flavian empire. And again, they renamed the city this time to Philadelphia Flavia. So it's interesting. We see that the city is continuously being destroyed by earthquakes Mm -hmm. and then renamed. And it is worth mentioning that this was in an area that had a lot of volcanic activity, which is probably why they had so many earthquakes. Right. You have the city that's continuously getting a new name. And at the end of this letter, we're going to see Jesus talk about not only receiving a new name, but becoming an immovable pillar in the city of God. Which is amazing which would have been so reassuring to people from many different levels, not just because they're living in a volatile area, but because that means that they are faithful to the Lord. So now that we've gone through some of that background, why don't we read the letter to Philadelphia? Okay. So this is chapter three, and we're beginning in verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Well, Nikki, in every one of the previous churches, Jesus has revealed a part of himself to that church they needed to see, and every time it has been drawn on his revelation of himself in chapter 1 to John. This revelation from Jesus is different. How does he reveal himself in this letter, Nikki, without actually pulling from chapter 1? What does he say about himself? He describes himself as holy and true, the one who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He's describing attributes of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the truthfulness of God. I think it's so interesting that to this particular church, which we will see has no condemnation, he's revealing some of this God-like attribute that he has not actually stated previously. And it's interesting that in Revelation 6.10, John refers to Jesus in this way again. He says, these are the souls under the altar who cry out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So, we see that the saints under the altar will call Jesus this same thing, holy and true. And here's one in 1 John 5.20, same author, different book, one of his epistles. This is what John says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And what we realize here is that Jesus is the truth. He is the realization of all the shadows. He is the source of reality. He is the true bread. He's the truth, the life, the living water, the light of the world. He is the reality and the truth behind all the shadows of the old covenant. I think that's just such an interesting thing about Jesus calling himself the true one. It is interesting, and it's interesting how it bookends this letter, because he's going to get into the hour of trial that's coming on the earth. I recently heard a pastor talk about the character of God, and he said, if God doesn't deal with sin, then there is no justice in God. And if there is no justice in God, then there is no holiness in God. And here he's saying, I am the one who is holy. I am the one who is true. And he's going to go into the fact that he's also the one who holds the key of David. So talk about that key of David. That is a very odd thing to say if you don't know where the references are found in the Old Testament. What is this about? Well, ultimately, it's talking about his authority over the kingdom and access to the Father. This is his sovereignty. And I love the picture he gives that he opens doors and no one else can shut them. I know. And he shuts doors and no one else can open them. It's chilling. It is. If you're on the wrong side of things, isn't it? It was first referenced in Isaiah 22, and it says, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And then he goes on and he says he will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So this is something that's been prophesied from way back in the Old Testament. And here Jesus is taking this and saying, I have the key. I'm the one Isaiah was talking about. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus uses part of this reference when he tells Peter that he was going to give him the keys of the kingdom. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Some people, the Catholic organization, for example, has taken this and said, see, proof that Peter is the first pope, the one who has all authority, the vicar of Christ, the one who has the power of Christ on earth. But that's not what's going on here. If we look at what actually happened in history and look at the book of Acts, we see that on the day of Pentecost, the Lord gave Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews in the temple in Acts 2, and then again in Acts 8, to go and baptize the first Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit, and then in Acts 10, to preach to Cornelius and his family, the first group of Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit. In a very real way, Peter was given the keys to unlock the kingdom of heaven to all these people groups, just as Jesus had said before he rose into heaven. And he said to go preach the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. And Peter was the one given the job to do that. So it's not saying Peter has the original authority to loose and bind, but it's saying Jesus gave him his power to bring the gospel, which would loose or bind, depending on whether people believed or not. So these keys are opening doors for ministry to bring people into the kingdom. Yes. And Jesus himself holds the key and he delegates authority to those who believe in him to talk about what he has done with his death, burial, and resurrection. It's interesting then that he goes on and says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is so opposite of what we've seen in some of these other churches where he says, repent or I will fill in the blank. Yeah, He's going to remove their gospel witnesses if they don't repent. Right. And here we see him saying, you have kept my name. You have kept my word. So I've put an open door before you. Wow. Here in the Gateway City, which was supposed to be an open door into the Lydian Empire to take Hellenistic culture. And it's interesting that, you know, people have different ideas about what this open door could mean. Some say the door is open to the entrance into God's kingdom, and others say it's open for evangelism and I don't really see conflict with it being both. I agree. That's how I see it. You know, the fact that Jesus says about the church at Philadelphia that they have kept my word and have not denied my name, it means they've honored God's word. They haven't deviated from scripture. They've focused on it. They haven't gotten sidetracked into social issues or making a living or appearing to worship, but really being dead. They have focused on God's Word. They have focused on the Lord. And isn't it interesting, Nikki, if we take it all the way back, Philadelphia is the opposite of Adam and Eve, who didn't keep God's Word, who questioned it and doubted it and didn't act on it. And the rest is history. It's such a contrast when we focus and keep God's Word, we stay where He wants us because He is speaking to us, and we're listening to Him, and we're not allowing distracting voices to take our attention away from what's real. And current to that present time, when this letter was written, the other churches who had been condemned, they weren't keeping His Word. 
They were becoming syncretistic. They were allowing people to come in and teach other gospels, other stories, or learn the deep things of Satan. And what he continues to say to them is, hold fast to what you had at first. Hold fast to what you have now. He keeps telling them, hold fast to my word. And here Philadelphia did. In spite of terrible persecution, as we see in the next verse. In the next verse, he says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they're Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So this church was clearly dealing with people who were working against them and probably who were Jewish. Yes. Except he says that they're not. We know from Paul in Romans 2 and in Romans 7 that there are Jews who say they're Jews, but they're not Jews in God's eyes because they're not Jews inwardly. And it was interesting to me that um, J. Vernon McGee summarized this so well. McGee said this synagogue, and there was a synagogue in Philadelphia, the Romans tended to colonize by sending groups of Jews into the areas they wanted to establish a base in. These were Jews post-cross. McGee points out that the Jews post-cross who are worshiping in the synagogues are the Jews who have not trusted Jesus, because if they had, they wouldn't be back trying to live under the old covenant with the synagogue Jews. He says these are Jews who have rejected Jesus And they are hostile to Christianity, and they're hostile to the Jews who become believers in Christ. They're administering terrible persecution to the Christians because it stands in complete opposition to their Jewish heritage. Because the Christians are saying the Jewish law has been fulfilled in Christ, and we now have the Messiah, and the Jews didn't want to think that. So they were hostile to the Christians. So I I see a slight detour here, if you don't mind. No. These Jews, if these are the Jews that McGee is referring to, then these Jews believe they're Jews. Yes, they do. And yet scripture says that they're lying. Yes. And I know sometimes we get pushback when we talk about the deception in Adventism. These Jews in Philadelphia would not have believed they were being deceptive. They were Jews and they were saying they were Jews because they believed that they were Jews. Yes. But the word of God says that that disconnect from reality, they're still guilty of deception. Yes. And I think the point is clear. Adventism claims to be spiritual Israel because they keep the Ten Commandments and the important food laws. (laughs) They are very clear with their members that they're spiritual Israel and that they have inherited the place of the nation of Israel on the side of the cross because they alone are true to the Ten Commandments, including the fourth. And they say that they are going to get the blessings that God promised to the nation of Israel because of that. I think the application can be made here. Jesus is saying, the synagogue of Satan who says they're Jews but are not, well, people who claim to be Jews when they're not, number one, are deceiving themselves. Mm -hmm. There is such a thing as being an ethnic Jew, and Adventists in general are not that. But even more to the point, they are going backwards and grabbing onto a covenant that has been fulfilled in Christ. And they're saying because they're holding on to this covenant that was given to the Jews, that they've inherited the Jews' blessings. No, 
No, on this side of the cross, there's one way to even approach knowing that you're saved, and that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work and His fulfillment of the law. And we have to say, I think this can be applied to Adventism. Now, don't hear us condemning all Adventists. God has his people who do believe him in Adventism, but have been deceived by it. He has others to whom he has been revealing himself, and he is pulling them out. So there are people who are Adventists, who are God's people, who are Jesus's sheep. But as an organization, Adventism falls into this category of a false synagogue of Satan, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's interesting because in another letter, he tells the church, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And here he's talking about a synagogue of Satan. And it makes me think of Ephesians chapter 2, where we're, all humanity is described as born dead in sin under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. So either you're of the kingdom of the beloved son or you're not. Yeah. No matter what shape it is, no matter what it looks like, whether you're a part of an imperial cult yeah. or you're a synagogue that doesn't believe in Christ. Or a church that's looking back to the law instead of forward to Jesus. It's interesting that in this first promise where he says that he's going to make them come and bow at their feet, he also says he will make them know that he loved them. He doesn't just say, I'll make them admit it. Oh, he says, I will make them know that I have loved you. Isn't that amazing? That's actually really very encouraging, isn't it, Nikki? It is. I found it interesting that J. Vernon McGee said, the Lord commended the Church of Philadelphia on seven counts. And I, I thought I would bring that up right here because McGee drew from verses 8, 9, and ends with 10, which we're about to go to. And he summarizes the ways Jesus said he was commending this church at Philadelphia. And I'm just going to read them briefly. The first commendation is, I know your works. And he says, they have done the works of being born again. Their works are not what is saving them. Their works are what are demonstrating that they have trusted the Lord. It's like Ephesians 2.10, where Paul tells us that we are the workmanship of Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Here's John recording that Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, I know your works. They're doing the works he gave them to do. And then he says, I've set before you a door that no one can shut. And Nikki, you've already talked about that. Instead of condemning them and saying, you need to repent or I'll remove your lampstand, he has said, the door before you is open. You have the gospel. You are taking the gospel. And this is a commendation from the Lord because Philadelphia has been faithful to his word and to him. And then the third commendation is, you have a little power. So this is a very small church. This is a very small city. But this very small church has been under attack. And we've just read how they've been under attack from the synagogue of Satan, who's been hostile towards them because of their trust in Christ. So even though they're small and under attack, they're staying true to the word and they're sharing the word. And even though they may not be able to count their converts or know what their influence is, God sees and God knows. And you know, Nikki, I think it's so interesting. We almost never see in our lifetimes 
the effects of our lives, right? Mm -hmm. We don't see it from God's perspective. But here we are in 2023 looking at this letter to Philadelphia, and we're seeing how God was commending the church at Philadelphia (laughs) for their faithfulness. And even though we don't know how many people have come to faith because of the work of that church, we can see that their example is still alive for us today. And it's kind of an amazing thing from God's perspective. And then the fourth thing he commends is that they have kept his word. This was at a time when there was a great denial of the Lord Jesus, like we've already talked about with the synagogues, but not only the synagogues, the Greek and the Roman religions, the emperor worship, the fertility gods and goddesses. There was a denial of Jesus, but this church, this small church in Philadelphia, has not denied the scriptures, including the New Testament witness of the apostles. And I think it's really interesting to remember that John wrote this book about 90-ish, 96-ish AD. Paul has already written. So, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and here is John commending this church because Jesus is commending them, and they are being faithful to what he has revealed to the church. And those things are already existing. Those letters from Paul already exist. The fifth commendation is, you've not denied my name. And again, this is a church that's true to Jesus, declaring Jesus, witnessing to Jesus in a time when that's not popular. They had imperial cult worship going on in Philadelphia, and that required them to deny his name and to claim that Caesar is Lord. So they were clearly not participating in that. Exactly. And you know, it had to be at great risk to themselves. Mm -hmm. It had to be at great cost to their own social standing and ability, even maybe to make a living. The sixth thing he says as a commendation is what we just talked about. Jesus himself is going to make the synagogue of Satan eventually come and bow down at your feet and know I have loved you. So, even though we don't have a historical record of a time when that happened for this particular church, this is a promise to faithful believers for all time. Those who oppose them, who ridicule and mock them and try to silence them, God is going to make those mocking unbelievers recognize His love for His true church. That time will come. It will come periodically throughout history, and it will come at some point when Jesus comes and makes all things known. And the last commendation is what we're going to find in verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Talk to us about that, Nikki. Well, the first thing I want to say is uh, when I prepared for this podcast, I, of course, listened to Gary and his presentation at Word Search. And I remember sitting in that room back in, was it 2013 or 14, around that time? And that text was an Adventist trigger for me. Yes. It was an hour of testing coming upon the whole world. And the picture that that immediately conjured up in my head is that we would be tested to see if we're faithful and if we will keep the Sabbath. Yeah. Now, at this point, I knew that that wasn't about the Sabbath, but there was a testing. It was going to come upon the whole world. And what's the test? Is it determining their works? Their, what is, what's being tested? And, and I asked Gary about it um, in that Q&A session. 
And he said that it's the kind of testing that when you put something in the fire to see its quality, yeah. it was going to just simply reveal this great time of testing that's to come will reveal the true character, the true nature of what's being tested. Yes. And here we have the Lord telling the church, I will keep you from the hour of testing, which tells me that white stone, yes. <laughs> that verdict has been given. He knows the quality. They Absolutely. are his. Mm-hmm. He has claimed them. They're born again. They will not enter into not just the test, but the hour of testing. That was interesting to me. The inclusion of hour is really significant. If we're kept from the hour of testing, this suggests that in some way, the faithful church will not be here on earth during that time when the testing occurs. Now, I know there are very many Christians who disagree with this understanding, Mm -hmm. and that's okay, because there is a certain amount of unclarity about it. But the fact is, that word means something, and we don't know exactly the shape of what that will look like here from this particular passage, but it does suggest that the faithful believers, at the time of the testing God brings on the world— that they will be kept out of not just the testing, but the hour. They will be somewhere else. (laughs) There are preterists who will use verse 10 to say that this is about AD 70, that he was going to keep them from what was coming in AD 70. But it does say to test those who dwell on the earth. This is the whole earth. And there are other passages of scripture that support that. Absolutely. And this is something to the church. You know, this is not written to people who are living in Jerusalem. This is written to the church. I don't see how what happened in AD 70 can fulfill all of this. In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, (laughs) yeah. The hour of testing is an interesting figure of speech as well. We get the first reference to that in Daniel 12, 1, where the angel says to Daniel, Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, and remember, Daniel's people are the Jews, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And in Mark 13, 19, we read this. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Those were Jesus's words. And Jesus said, and never will, which means this couldn't have been eighty seventy because we have seen worse destruction since eighty seventy. That's a really good point. And then, of course, Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12 describes this coming time of trouble. And instead of reading the whole thing, I'll just suggest that you look it up because it's got so many details and we can see that this has not happened, including the revelation of the Antichrist. So then we come to verse 11, where Jesus says on the tale of, I will keep you out of the hour of testing coming on the world. Behold, I am coming quickly. How do we make sense of that, living all these years after this? Well, I believe that it means when he comes, he's coming suddenly. I think so too, and that seems to be a consensus among the commentators. It doesn't mean immediately, but it means suddenly. When things are completed, when the signs have 
multiplied and led up to the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, as Jesus described in Matthew 24, when those things start to happen, the hour arrives, His coming will be sudden and quick. And here again, we see him telling the church, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't say, hold fast what you have so that you don't lose your salvation. (laughs) I think that's really significant. This is a statement about their rewards. Yes. Salvation, by the way, is not a reward. Mm -mm. And that took me a while to figure out. Oh, sure. It took a lot of us a long time to figure out. (laughs) Salvation is a gift, a free gift, which we do not gain through our behavior or our works, nor can we lose it by our works. It's a matter of belief or unbelief. It's a matter of, are we spiritually alive or are we not? Salvation is a free gift, but the works that we do when we are believers, those are works that will be eligible for reward if they're the works of the Lord and built, as Paul says, if they're works of gold, silver, and precious stones and not of wood, hands, double. And here's the passage where Paul tells about that. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 15. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. This is like the testing that's coming on the whole world. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So as through fire. Now, I didn't know that as an Adventist, Nikki. <laughs> no, I stared at that for so long when I read that after leaving. He himself will be saved because our salvation is not a reward. That's it's a right. gift. And we can be saved people who don't build on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones. And that's a horrible thought. It's a horrible Mm -hmm. thought to think that our lives as believers may be essentially burned up. We want our lives in Christ to count for eternity, but our works do not guarantee our gift of life. Mm -hmm. They only determine rewards. So then John talks about overcomers again. And in his other letters, we remember that he said, those who overcome are those who are born of God, those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name, that is the security of the believer. Isn't that wonderful, Nikki? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think it's so interesting that it says there'll be a pillar. This is to people who've been shaken and shaken. Yeah. Even not just at the time John wrote, but in the future, 
this church is going to be shaken by seismic activity over and over again. They're used to being on unstable ground. But Jesus says, you are a pillar. That's a foundational structure, uh, weight-bearing structure in ancient architecture. They're going to help hold up his temple. And they're going to be secure in themselves, knowing that they're not going out from it anymore. It makes me think of those people in Philadelphia who wouldn't go back into the city because of the aftershocks. Right. They don't have to fear what comes next. They themselves are a pillar in the temple of the Lord. And then I think it's so significant that it says they will have a new name, the name of Jesus and the name of God on them and the name of the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. And if we look ahead to Revelation 22, 21 and 22, we see that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven adorned like a bride for her husband. Nikki, Jesus isn't marrying buildings. Mm-mm. <laughs> the saints are the new Jerusalem. Now, apparently there is a city, mm-hmm. but the saints are the bride and the saints will wear that name. And you know, I think it's so interesting that in Galatians 4.26, Paul even talks about the covenants and he says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. I love that. Well, and in Hebrews chapter 12, we see a description of this heavenly Jerusalem and listen to how he describes it. But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. This new Jerusalem contains the church. Yes, even now. Even now, and it will come down. The church will come down out of heaven. Oh, that's so amazing. That's amazing, (laughs) Nikki. (laughs) Then we come to verse 13, where Jesus ends this letter to this church, and he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what does that mean, the churches? This is for all of the churches and for all of time because it's the Word of God. And when he says this at the end of these letters, we again see the authority that the Spirit has and we see the unity of the Trinity. Yes. We see the authority of Scripture. Nikki, I can't think of anything that's better than being made alive by the blood of Christ and being brought into this church and body of Christ, the church of God. And we have eternal life. When we believe, we pass from death to life, John 5, 24. And if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't recognized that you are a sinner and you cannot overcome your sin, you need a Savior, you need a rescue. If you haven't recognized that, face that fact now. Own your own sin and Go to the Lord Jesus and lay it at the foot of his cross and acknowledge that he has shed his blood, has taken your imputed sin into his body, and has suffered the wrath of God on that cross instead of you. He died, and three days later he rose from death because his sacrifice was a sufficient payment for your sin. And if you recognize that and trust Him, your sin will not be counted on you. It will be placed on Christ, and you will be made alive and given eternal life and eternal security. And if you haven't trusted Him in this way, this is the time to do it. Do it now. Join us next week as we look at the Lord's letter to the church in Laodicea. We'll see you then. 
Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.